0: From East to West and Kingdom to Kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt Podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Diz Unplug Connecting with Walt podcast I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. I'm joined by my co-host and producer Craig Williams Craig how are you today I'm doing great Michael how are you doing well We're enjoying our typical 97-degree fall weather here in California.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, I'm doing uh, basically the same out in Orlando. Instead of uh, 97 and actual uh, no humidity, I'm dealing with uh, the same 97 but
0: extreme humidity. So it is so much better. Yeah, when I was out there a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't believe the humidity. Yeah, you know. I will never
1: get used to it as long as I live in Florida. And uh, since that's going to be a long time, I really need to start getting used to it sooner than
0: later. Yeah, you know, It's funny because I I was fortunate enough as I roamed around the parks because I was doing research. I went to food and wine because I'd never been there. I bumped into a lot of listeners, including, uh, including listeners that have just relocated. There and I, I, asked them, "How do you get used to this?" And they said, "Oh yeah, you do." And um, I thought, "I have no idea how." No, but I guess you just adjust how you live. No, it's a complete lie. I've
1: been here five years now, and. Whenever I was meeting people who have lived here for a year or two, they were like, Oh, you're going to get used to it. Five years into it, I haven't. So now I'm talking to people who have been here, you know, 10, 20 years, and they always say, Oh, you know, you'll get used to it by uh, by this point. And I, I, I've got to call them liars at this point. <laughs> I just don't believe it. You can't, If you are not built to deal with humidity, you will never get used to living in Florida. But there are a lot of benefits that come from it, so you, you really have to you have to decide what's more important: being uh, sane year-round because of the temperature, or dealing with all the fun that you get to have by living here.
0: Yeah, that's true. So, and I guess you just stay indoors a lot
1: when it's humid. All, all the air conditioning. I have my yeah. fan turned off right now, and it's uh, it's been
0: torture for the past twenty minutes. Yeah, I don't know how the early pioneers did it. You know, they wore wool clothes and they had no air conditioning.
1: If only there was was like an attraction where we could go back and find out how uh, Mr. Lincoln did it in the past, then that would be great. (laughs) Except his room's air conditioned. True, very
0: true. (laughs) Anyway, well, you know, this is episode three and we've gotten a lot of really good feedback about the first two episodes from listeners. Oh my gosh, yeah. people have been very kind and we really appreciate it we've uh, you know we've been reading them all and uh, although we're on YouTube now but uh, and I haven't I haven't seen those comments yet
1: yeah that is a good point for anyone who's uh, listening to this right now on the podcast Uh, we have expanded onto YouTube uh, strictly for the uh, all anyone out there who does have a uh, hearing disability uh, if you need to see that text on there Uh, pretty much every video that we do put up on youtube does come with closed captioning so uh, we're able to help you out and be able to enjoy enjoy shows like connecting with walt and very soon uh, I haven't mentioned it every before, but very soon, the Disneyland edition of the show, too, you'll be able to take in that through YouTube as well, too. So we really are expanding that to make sure that everyone gets to enjoy all these as much as possible. So if you can't listen on uh, iTunes, then, you know, very soon, you'll be able to uh, listen to everything that the Dis Unplugged has to offer on YouTube as well.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what it what the closed captioning does with me because siri doesn't totally understand me on on like my iphone and Uh, i know it's because it has trouble with some of my vowels because i i i speak with different accents depending upon where i am and um, you you do
1: and i'll be brutally honest already that youtube does have problem with some of your accents uh (laughs) and it's actually quite amusing but at the same time i feel like if uh if you have even a quarter of a brain. I won't even go in so far to say in half a brain. If you have a quarter of a brain, you can essentially figure out everything that you're trying to say on there. So it is, it, it's
0: amusing, but at the same time, it does get it uh, wrong a, a little bit of the time. I will have, have to watch it no because I mean, I, I'm 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 from a British I have, I have British ancestry and I grew up speaking in a British accent. But as I mentioned on the first show when I was when I worked for Disney, uh, they wanted the all American boy next door. And so I had to work with a vocal coach at Disney to speak as I do now, and, uh, and, and try to keep the accent at bay. And I, um, I, 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 I'm really good at it. But at home, frequently, I I don't speak with it. And um or when I'm, if I'm around other people who are British, I start to struggle. Or if, if I'm really tired, I will. Uh, my students, especially, will notice later in the day they'll start hearing the accent starting to come through. Oh yeah, I've some heard older. you slip
1: into it uh, once or twice. There, <laughs> some of the long lines we've waited together with
0: it, D23 in the past. Oh, (laughs) and I do use slang that isn't commonly used here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, but we also got some good suggestions. Uh, There was some good comments that people had, and one I think in particular gave us a really good idea for a future segment and even a a future episode, maybe even a series of episodes. And because somebody had talked about – M- mentioned he was a bit disappointed that we didn't go into great detail on our feelings on the um PBS series on Walt Disney yeah. and and you know it was meant to just sort of be a discussion and I had talked about it in more length on the Disneyland podcast and go- Craig and I got the thinking that rather than perhaps doing one episode devoted to just that one pbs series we could do an episode that or even a series of episodes that deal with uh, how walt was portrayed fictionally in some films like saving mr banks and and he's and then there's been a couple of independent films that have come out recently with well let's just say mixed reviews let's be kind and then, and then how he's been portrayed, you know, he was in um, the documentary El Grupo, you know, came out, how he's portrayed through documentaries. And the one that I always recommend is um, Walt, The Man Behind the Myth. You know, we have the PBS one that just came out. Uh, there's, uh, you brought up one that I didn't even think of, Craig, and that was The Reluctant Dragon. yeah. Yeah, and and so where again we can see it's Walt, but he's the 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 Walt the the image of Walt, the Walt Disney that was sort of created, and and, and for for the public. Like Walt said towards the end of his life, you know, uh, you know, I'm not Walt Disney because to the public, Walt Disney doesn't smoke. I smoke. You know, to the public, Walt Disney doesn't drink, I drink. To the public, Walt Disney doesn't curse, I curse. And he talked about how his image has grown beyond him. And, and, and it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah. So I think that's what we're going to start looking at, is the different ways Walt has been portrayed in the media. Oh, exactly, and there
1: obviously are some very, very low points, uh, and specifically, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, as Dreamers do, uh, mm-hmm. the one independent-made movie that came out uh, a year or two ago now that was just downright awful. Uh, yeah, if, I have it. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, uh, Michael, I, I apologize <laughs> to anyone out there who enjoys it, but it was... It was unwatchable. Uh, anyone who truly got enjoyment out of it is just, they're that type of people. And there's nothing wrong with this, but they're that type of people who is willing to ignore taste in order to be say, be able to say, like, oh, you know, I it's about this person that I love, so I'm going to enjoy it for that reason. At some point, you have to set a boundary. You have to set that boundary point where you're able to say okay this is just bad um and that that's one of those ones that do it but I, i'm actually excited to go back and revisit some of these other films that i haven't watched in some some bit of time to rediscover how film has portrayed walt disney over the the past years and you know, it's that, one of my favorite things to do. And as many times as I watch Reluctant Dragon, there's always something that I'll be able to find in there that I didn't see before. And I can't mm-hmm. wait for it.
0: Yeah, that'll be fun, and what it'll—I it, think this will be interesting because you're the film critic for the Diz, so you can give us that perception or perspective, I should say, and then and I can talk more to the accuracy of how he was portrayed. Oh yeah, I mean self self declared
1: film critic. I won't give myself <laughs> too much credit, but. I, I do understand what they were intending by uh, whenever anyone makes a movie, as much as I can, as much as to my knowledge. But, yeah, I, I can't wait for it.
0: Yeah, I think that'll be good. And and another film we'll probably be talking about soon is um, Tomorrowland, which, as we're recording this, came out on Blu-ray and DVD today. And I know Craig and I are both really looking forward to seeing this and, and, and talking a little about it and seeing what got cut out of it because they made such a big deal out here at Disneyland about how they redressed the park and and they did a remarkable job and, and 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 in order to try to film capture that feel of the 64 New York World's Fair and then so much of it was cut out. Oh yeah, and I already film. I already they, told they, you yeah, Sorry. and, and they, well, and they already they, how they cut out all references to Walt Disney because they were so afraid if it was associated with Disney, the larger public wouldn't go and see the film.
1: Oh, and I'm still ticked off. As I told you before we started this, I'm mad because Amazon was supposed to deliver it to me today as part of Prime, and now they're telling me I'm not going to get it until tomorrow night or Thursday morning, and uh, so. I guess I have a, a couple more days that I have to wait on starting my further research into the movie. But uh, I've, I watched it, obviously, in the theaters whenever I gave my mm-hmm. initial review on it. And then I watched it on one of my airplane flights, I believe on the way back from D23. I was able to watch it again, and I enjoyed it even more than I did in theaters, uh, especially that I could go in with a, a fresh look on it as more of not even a, as a movie about Walt Disney's ideals but more just as like an action adventure movie uh you know which you always have to go in with kind of a a little bit of your brain turned off to sometimes enjoy that i'm specifically speaking towards especially like the national treasure movies which are so
0: stupid, but so enjoyable. I <laughs> love they... I really like them. I'm so excited. that I think they're making another one. I hope so. They are, but you have to admit, they are so stupid, even oh, they though they are, are so good. <laughs> they are, but, you know, I loved it when they did the live-action version of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. I liked that one, and I was so disappointed when they, they said they weren't making any more.
1: I, I, I did like it, too. I, I saw it in theaters. I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. So, well, so anyway, so thank you for the suggestions. And so keep those coming in because you just never know something that you suggest to us might spark an idea for an episode. And in this case, probably a series of episodes. I know something I want to do on connecting with Walt is at at some point start, you know, looking back at at, like the animated films in sequence. and, And so that we can start. Not only talking about how they were made, because some of the stories are fascinating, but even as we talk about the progression as to how they improved, how technology improved, um, how the artistry changed as we go through the films. So I think that's something we would enjoy doing. I'm excited as, for that um, one. Yeah. So anyway, and I've been saying for years, I've been telling Carol, I want, I'm just going to start with Snow White and I'm going to go through the whole, all of them. It could be your legacy. <laughs> so, yeah that's right. <laughs> anyway, well let's let's start well, let's start talking a little more about Walt. Um, in our previous episode, Craig and I talked about Walt and Roy's desire to expand beyond Disneyland in an effort to defray the costs of Walt's visionary and technologically challenging plans. Now, whilst Roy was thinking more of a Disneyland East, Walt had much grander plans that when built, could have an epic impact on modern society. However, there were some plans that captured Walt's interests, briefly, and we discussed them in our last episode and the effects that they did have on Disneyland and Walt Disney World. So, in today's episode three, titled The Search Ends and the Mystery Unfolds, Craig and I are going to look at Walt's decision on where his project would be constructed. Um, how the Disneyland company secretly moved forward with the plan, and how it unexpectedly became public knowledge. Walt couldn't be in control of everything, as it turned out. (laughs) So now many of the projects we discussed in Episode 2 would have to be indoors due to winter weather. Um, And this would require increased building and engineering costs, and it would limit the height and size of the rides and attractions. So to avoid the challenges of the winter weather, Walt appeared to grow more interested in the southeastern United States as the best option for his expansion plans. And no sorry, hmm? I was just going to say it's
1: and obviously this is jumping a little bit ahead, but in terms of how Disney World is built, it it's funny that he already had this in mind because a lot of the attractions that are in place at this point in time are built that You know, with the weather challenges we have down here, including thunderstorms at any given time of the day, it's that the rides can still maintain and operate because a lot of them are indoors. And we have very few outdoor attractions that are solely dedicated to being outdoors. And so it is kind of it's interesting that even though he had to look towards the southeast, if he would have done something up north, it might have ended up being the same as it is down here.
0: Right. And well and the interesting thing is is that the, when people visit Disneyland that is one of the big things they notice is that our attractions are outside. All of our queues are exterior queues. So we don't have the opportunity for the interactive queues as for instance they installed in Peter Pan yeah, last exactly. year. And uh, you know our mad tea party is completely uncovered. And so when it rains in Disneyland it has uh, a more significant effect but on the operation rains. of the park than it does in Disney World. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, so that, that is yeah that is an interesting observation. Uh, now before Disneyland opened, and this is I think to to your point, Craig, uh, amusement park operators agreed that amusement parks are primarily for the summer season. So Disneyland's location in a warm and sunny Southern California proved there was a market for year-round theme park visitors. So this led Walt to focus on a location for his Eastern project. in. And some of these states are interesting. Mm -hmm. South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. So these are states with weather usually warm enough for a year-round outdoor theme park. But out of all these states... Walt kept coming back to the sunshine state of Florida as the most likely location for his project. And I'm going to do now. what I criticized that PBS series on. I'm going to do a little armchair uh, maybe theorizing about Walt here. So besides the weather, there are other personal reasons that may have motivated Walt's preference for Florida. So as with Missouri, Walt had several family connections to Florida – um, in the late 1800s, his father Elias moved to Florida, and it was there that he met and married Flora Call, and that who became Walt's mother. Yeah. And sometime later, Elias purchased an orange, gro- orange grove, and Walt's older brother Herbert was born in Florida. And later, Elias moved his family to Chicago because the he had heard about some good prospects there. And that's where Walt and his younger sister, Ruth were born. Hmm. And you know, one thing about Walt is he was sentimental and nostalgic. So by returning to Florida, Walt would bring his family's history full circle. And I didn't realize that he spent
1: so much time in Florida. Uh, Elias, that is. Uh, I I—I mm-hmm. mean, I had heard about it before, but I thought it was months at most, but Clearly, it had to be a quite a bit longer.
0: Yeah, it was there for a few years. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was interesting. And I, I don't, I think he struggled a bit with the orange grove. Elias just was not a farmer. Yeah, which is interesting that then he went to Marceline. But um, God bless you know, he, him for
1: trying. <laughs>
0: yeah, he did. You know, and that was the one thing we talked about that on the PBS series that that Elias was always a failure. But you know, Elias always picked himself up. And then he would try something new. And, that's, and it's funny because that's, that is the quality, one of the qualities we most admire in Walt. Exactly.
1: It's one of his in philosophies.
0: It. Yeah. He always says, you know, when you ride that elevator that's supposed to recreate the train ride that he took from um, Kansas City out to, to Los Angeles in the Walt Disney Family Museum. And one of the things that Walt says, I really believe in life, you have to have a good hard failure. Yep. in order to succeed. So, you know, you know, Walt learned that from his father. Yep. You know, so so you know, so the first indication Walt was interested in Florida occurred during a June nineteen fifty nine meeting in Burbank, California, with executives from the NBC television network. And the executives had scheduled the meeting with the hope of persuading Walt to partner with NBC in developing a theme park in New York. And so in 1954, Walt had entered into an agreement with ABC Television Network to broadcast the weekly Disneyland television show that was hosted by Walt and other Disney-produced television shows. Uh, Some of our favorites, like the Mickey Mouse Club, Zorro, you know, was another one. Yeah. And with the cash and loan guarantees from ABC, Walt was able to build Disneyland – And in exchange, ABC owned a significant share of Disneyland. And I get into this in a lot more detail in my 60 Years of Walt series on our Disneyland show. Cool. And a clause in the contract allowed Walt to purchase ABC's share of Disneyland at cost, which Walt took advantage of. And so the contract with ABC was set to expire in 1960, and Walt was looking for a better broadcasting and financial arrangement. And so in his search, Walt contacted NBC, and in the early 1950s, NBC had turned down a television deal with Walt to fund the park. However, Disneyland had been running for four years now. It's 1959. It was wildly successful, so the situation was very different when Walt approached them. Yeah, yeah. so at this meeting in June 1959, the Disney team made a presentation to Robert Sarnoff, president of NBC. And at the time, NBC was owned by the Radio Corporation of America, or RCA, who at the time was the leader in color television. Okay. And is this where, and excuse my
1: ignorance right now, is this where it went into Wonderful World of Color, or was this still Walt Disney Presents?
0: Walt Disney Presents was still on ABC, okay. but you're right. When he went over to NBC, it became the Wonderful World of Color. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So now um, Walt embraced new technology and it was why he went over to NBC was because they were already broadcasting in color. And Walt understood the impact color television would have in the industry. So much so that even though his Disneyland television show on ABC was broadcast in black and white, Walt insisted the show be filmed in color. The Mickey Mouse Club was also completely filmed in color and when are we getting all this released in color on blu-ray disc i know yeah. I'm, I'm sure because of copyrights we'll never get it all the only one that wasn't was zorro yeah um it was colorized years later but um it was filmed in black and white kind of like those
1: somehow, awful i love lucy colorized versions that came out
0: yeah disney did a better job i thought colorizing zorro yeah i agree uh, i completely agree yeah <laughs> So um, now Walt who, um, well, well, when Walt spoke to Robert Sarnoff, Sarnoff was incredibly enthusiastic about the idea of Walt moving his weekly television show to NBC, because Sarnoff also wanted to build an East Coast Disneyland in New York State. So NBC would help finance this park as ABC had done for Disneyland, and Sarnoff would hold part ownership in the park. There was a big difference in this deal than in the ABC one. Because in NBC's deal that Sarnoff wanted to do, there would be no buyout clause in the NBC contract as there was in the ABC contract. Mm. Sarnoff would be a permanent owner of the park. And Walt was hesitant. He wasn't convinced he and Roy would benefit from having another partner. So Walt once again turned to Harrison, Buzz Price, and his company, Economics Research Associates, or ERA, to conduct a feasibility study for the New York project, and the ERA report from Buzz was not favorable. Buzz determined that year-round operation of a New York park would not be feasible because of the climate. So um, in the Northeast, amusement parks traditionally operated for about 120 days per year, And Walt had learned from operating Disneyland that he needed to operate year-round to maximize his investment and to build a professional staff. Oh, yeah. And growing up in the Northeast, that's the
1: obvious difference that comes in between Disney World, Disneyland, and anything else. Like The the theme park that was closest to me growing up, that was literally, you know, it started uh, Memorial Day and lasted in through september some of them you know sometimes it would go into october with halloween events but after that
0: it was over hmm. so so yeah so did coney island in new york in its heyday did it also shut down i believe it did
1: i hmm. don't know that much about coney and i can only speak for uh, my home park in pittsburgh kennywood and oh yeah that That definitely did operate on the seasonal schedule. Um, So I've got to imagine they can't run like, oh my gosh, well, it's the Big Dipper. That's the Mm -hmm. name of the roller coaster at Coney Island. They they wouldn't be able to run that in the winter. That'd be all sorts of trouble.
0: Yeah. Gosh, I've always wanted to go to Kennywood because that's like the grandfather of the amusement parks.
1: Oh, it's the history that is throughout that park is just you can't beat it second to none uh even though so much has changed throughout the day the park itself has changed uh dramatically the fact that part of the park that is now uh, some of the most thrilling rides and uh some of the most fun section used to be a giant swimming pool and a, just a swimming hole back in the day uh it's it's crazy to watch documentaries on it that it always show up on pbs uh that really show off how it used to be um i i love that park i'll always love Mm -hmm. it it was such a big part of growing up not as much as whenever i was a younger child a lot of that's dedicated to disney world and and going down there but then once i became older and discovered kenny wood that's that really set amusement parks into perspective for me
0: Hmm. yeah i have to go there someday do it (laughs) now another thing that the era study pointed out the difference in the new york tourism market from the tourism market on the west coast in florida is that new york travelers were typically there on business rather than for pleasure and the length of their trips tended to be short so relatively few travelers came as tourists so the park would be dependent on local visitors it was much like disneyland Um, Another drawback was the lack of adequate sites for the park. Um, By the mid-20th century, large acreages of virgin land no longer existed in the New York region. And after his experience in Anaheim, Walt knew he needed a larger site for the project with significant acreage to buffer the park from adjacent development and neighborhoods. And that's a theme of his all throughout the story we're going to talk about with Disney World in in the next couple of episodes. Um, Walt did not want to repeat his mistake with Disneyland of purchasing too little land. So as a result of the ERA report, Walt believed New York presented too many problems. And this belief was reinforced by the failure of an amusement park just 30 minutes from Times Square in the Bronx um, by subway, and that was called Freedom Land. And that was built by Walt's former construction manager, C.V. Wood. And uh, I talk about C.V. Wood again in the 60 Years of Disneyland um, series. And real estate developer, William Zeckendorf. Now, this was a U.S. history-themed freedom land. And it opened in 1960, around the same time Walt was exploring his own New York project. And this park showed the influence of Disneyland. And its architecture and attractions. Craig, are you familiar with Freedom Land? I'm not, but the first thing
1: that just comes to mind is how much people would eat that up today if something opened up called Freedom Land. It <laughs> would just be—it would be a Republican's dream almost if that could open up.
0: <laughs> well, if you, it, there's a lot of sites devoted to it on the web, and if you look at it, you can you can see that so much of it is derivative of disneyland it it has like a, its own frontierland there's a train running around it there's uh, it has its you know the big river boats i mean there's a lot of similarities it has a main street you know and all of that the problem is is freedom land was underfunded from the beginning yeah. and so it never made a profit and it closed in 1964 so this convinced Walt that he was correct in not choosing New York as the site for his project. Yeah, good idea. So, um, so Walt continued to search for other locations. Another opportunity arose with um, billionaire John D. MacArthur, who wanted to develop five to six acres he owned north of Palm Beach for a recreational enterprise. And MacArthur had made his fortune as the head of Bankers Life Insurance and RCA. And suddenly, the NBC-Disney-RCA deal to build Disneyland East was back in discussion with a Palm Beach, Florida location.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's like a complete mogul, because back in the time, RCA actually meant something. It
0: was mm-hmm. it was a big deal. Oh, yeah, it was a huge corporation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean practically everybody's electronics were made by was made by RCA. Yeah, you know, and Zenith, Zenith was the other big one <laughs> when I was a boy. So, um However, Walt was not interested in simply building a sequel to Disneyland. He wanted to control what happened on the border of this park by becoming a city designer and surrounding his park with a new futuristic community. Walt wanted to build a town of his own design that reflected his vision and standards. And the Palm Beach project would be a four-way deal between Disney, NBC, RCA, and MacArthur. So Walt once again called in Buzz Price and his company to conduct a feasibility study on the Palm Beach project. Now from Buzz's perspective, it is apparent Walt was now committed to pursuing his dream to build a new type of community, According to an interview Buzz gave years later, he said, "Um, We put our effort together with WED in determining what kind of an interrelated park and city could be developed on that site. And Walt wanted to emphasize future development in urban living. The park would take up 400 acres. A town base of 70,000 people would take up the rest. So the ERA study incorporated advanced concepts of architectural design and technological improvements in all phases of the town development. Huh. So now this project would include a Disney-style theme park, which would be part of the planned community. Uh, and Walt finally had to give in to the f- to the fact that there had to be a theme park. Roy had convinced him that if they were ever going to build a city – they, they needed the capital and the theme park would bring in that capital. Of course, yeah. So, so according to Buzz Price, the Palm Beach project represented the moment Walt got fully obsessed with the idea of building a city. Walt saw this as an opportunity to do something truly grand and he began to learn more about urban planning. Now, this would be the first time Walt used the name Epcot experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And Walt was so serious about this project, he assigned Marvin Davis, who had worked with Walt to design Disneyland and the St. Louis Waterfront Square project we talked about in Episode 2 to prepare renderings and concept drawings. Which seems so long ago at this point. I know, really. <laughs> and it's, it's been only a few years. I know, Exactly. <laughs> Um, Now, Walt already knew how to make a successful family-based entertainment destination. Uh, The new theme park would incorporate all the best lessons from Disneyland. It would be larger and function more efficiently and more effectively. More important to Walt, he would control the environment surrounding this theme park. Walt would leave nothing to chance. Walt could design the community Building a city was just the kind of challenge Walt wanted. This project would not be a sequel to Disneyland. This would be a completely new production. Now, as always happens with Walt's projects, it grew in scope. And as the scope of the project grew, so did the need for more land. And the need to justify a larger investment. So Buzz Price was able to provide the justification in his research and feasibility study. In early nineteen fifty nine, Buzz sent Walt a feasibility study that looked favorably on the Florida tourism market. So not before we get too
1: far ahead of this, uh but you specifically said that it wouldn't be a sequel to Disneyland. How do you feel about Disney World? Do you see it as that sequel to
0: Disneyland? You know, I do in that because when I interviewed Rolly Crump, my Windows to the Magic series, we talked about why, you know, what happened because the original plans, it was a it was a different park. They weren't going to make a a larger version of Disneyland. They would still have Main Street. And the reason your Main Street is full size is because they needed offices. They didn't have... uh, you know, they didn't have the Burbank studio and all of that. And they what there was nothing around there where they could set up offices. Yeah. So that whole top those top floors are real working offices on your main street. And
1: the funny part and, about that is to me, Disneyland still feels bigger in scope than ours does, yeah. even though
0: ours is real size. But, like, your Fantasyland originally was going to have a a Sleeping Beauty attraction, a Mary Poppins attraction, a a 101 Dalmatians attraction. It was going to have attractions that we didn't have at Disneyland. You are going to have the um, – when we start doing, uh, you know, stories of attractions, we have to talk about this. You're going to have the Western um, Thunder Mesa. Yeah. You know project instead of pirates, so there it was going to be a significant difference, but finally, Roy just after Walt passed away and Roy was just determined to get walt disney Walt Disney World built. Um, he just he finally said you know we know what works yeah just build what we know works and so that's sort of why we have so many of the same attractions in both parks
1: and it feels like they're still running with that today we think we know what works so let's just do
0: it yeah (laughs) yeah yeah we know toy story midway manias is is popular so build a third track Uh, thank
1: you for reminding me i just forgot about that
0: yeah, instead of coming up with a whole different attraction, just build more of the same. Perfect. It's a yeah, plan. <laughs> build a hundred of them. <laughs> anyway, but but we digress. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, anyway, so Buzz Price flew to Palm Beach in the winter of 1959, and he toured 12,000 acres on the city's north side and began compiling information about the Palm Beach area. And the proposed project site. And Buzz delivered a report dated December 14, 1959, titled, The Economic Setting of the City of Tomorrow. And Buzz concluded the area offers a theme park attendance potential which equals or exceeds that experienced by Disneyland in Southern California. And the study went on to say an East Coast theme park would have no negative impact on the West Coast Disneyland. And Buzz reported Disneyland in Anaheim, for all of its high penetration in the available Southern California tourism, had a low rate of penetration each year in the eastern populations. There was a huge opportunity to reach new guests with an East Coast park. I think I was reading his study, and I think it was only like um, 2% of people from the East Coast, of, of the, the guests that went to Disneyland, only 2% were from the East Coast. I could
1: absolutely believe that, especially back in the day of having to do the week-long car drive all the way out to get there. Uh,
0: obviously, Right, because pl- yeah, plane travel wasn't as common. Yeah, they weren't going to Wally World, but they were going to Disneyland. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, for decades, the park... Well, at least 10 years or so, the parks wouldn't compete with each other. We saw no, uh, west of the Mississippi, we saw no advertising for Disney World. And I,
1: I like that idea though, uh, the same way that I, I still like it now. Um, it's at least from where I came from. I mean, it, back up in Pennsylvania, we saw the random commercials for Disney World every now and then. We never saw anything for Disneyland. If we did, I would have probably drove my parents more nuts. To go to mm-hmm. Disneyland instead of the once that we did my entire uh, my entire childhood, but it, it, I like that because that also ended up building up that idealized version of Walt Disney World in my head that I kept through today that actually brought me down here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like that. I like that they kept the the marketing cut off.
0: Yeah, it wasn't really until Michael Eisner came in and and really made Disney World what it is today that the huge destination international destination did they start advertising west at the mississippi
1: exactly not even disney world what it is today what he made hollywood studios
0: what it is today the thriving (laughs) amazing theme park that
1: it is
0: (laughs) oh so much for his legacy oh yeah So anyway, so based on this report, the prospects seem encouraging. So Walt traveled to South Florida and met with MacArthur. Walt checked into the Palm Beach Towers for a week-long stay under a fictitious name to avoid publicity. And this strategy was one the Disney company would take over the next decade to keep its interest in Florida secret. And this also provided Walt with an excuse to take a driving tour of Florida. Walt loved car trips. So Walt and MacArthur became good friends as they toured the area in MacArthur's classic large finned Cadillac. And after the Palm Beach driving tour, Walt was even more convinced this area held promise for his project. As Walt had mentioned in 1959 to a Miami Herald reporter, um, Florida would be a better deal, would be better than California in many ways. And so Walt and MacArthur shook hands in agreement on the land deal. So according to Buzz Price, Walt learned from MacArthur how to create beautiful lakes in Florida. During a visit to MacArthur's home, MacArthur insisted that Walt and Buzz join him in one of his favorite pastimes, skinny dipping in one of his lakes. Walt declined, but chatted with him from shore. Buzz said, MacArthur then gave us a lecture on how you get that crystal clear water in the lakes of Florida, relating it to sand bottoms on the clean lakes and their percolating and filtering action. It sounded like a manageable technology, and Walt was fascinated. And years later, this technology would be applied to the black waters of Orlando's Bay Lake and led to the creation of the white sand beaches at the Walt Disney World Resort. Oh, well, you learn something new every day. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, Walt sure did. (laughs) So, even with the partner's gentleman's agreement on the deal and the strong market research, the Palm Beach project never made it past the study phase. In early 1960, Buzz Price returned to Palm Beach and met with the three prospective developers on the project. However, a problem arose when Roy Disney later visited to begin finalizing the terms of the deal. So remember now, Walt's This had grown in scope for Walt's project, and he needed more land. So Roy was meeting with MacArthur's representatives, and during the meeting, Roy brought up the need for more property. Roy did not want to relive the problems they faced in Anaheim. And MacArthur was offended by this. He believed this request by Roy as an attempt to renegotiate Walt's agreement, and MacArthur left before completing negotiations. I have to get the hell out of here or I'll hit that goddamn beagle right in the nose. (laughs) MacArthur was quoted as saying of Roy in a subsequent Palm Beach Post article. Classy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um. Later, one of MacArthur's close colleagues claimed that Roy Disney's request for more property was the main reason for the project's demise. But in reality, the project failed because RCA would not come to terms on the cost of the project.
1: Yeah, I mean, just from my understanding on Florida in that period of time, uh, based off of books and other even fictionalized pieces that do a pretty good job at portraying Florida at that period of time land was never an issue there was plenty of land that could even be had at a decent price at that point in time so it's ridiculous to think that it all happened because they couldn't offer up more land ever
0: yeah yeah so um yeah and now what is what was Palm Beach like I've never been there as far as i understand palm
1: beach isn't much more than it is today a beach <laughs> and okay. uh you have i mean obviously beaches in florida can vary drastically from uh salty over touristy places like cocoa beach to you know just as equally but very touristy places like daytona beach or even clearwater i mean it's uh, a florida beach in my general sense has always been it's been a florida beach probably very similar to california and that a, a lot of the oceanfront property has always had that very touristy factor at least with california though you get in you know some beaches are richer than others but i don't think mm-hmm. that's ever been a sense in florida uh
0: at least i can't imagine yeah it's interesting too that walt was considering a beach because in in California, he had told Buzz he did not want to be near a beach because he didn't want to compete with the beach. He didn't want the beach crowd, uh, you know, coming into into his theme park. It would they'd also be tracking in the sand and all of that, and there'd be weather issues. So it was interesting that he was this serious about Palm oh, Beach. Oh, and uh, I, you know,
1: he, he might have sounded serious, but I think you hit the no You hit the nail on the head. Is that? it just wouldn't work if a Disney park was ever near a beach the same way. If what we had with Disney world would be 50 minutes closer to the coast on either way, it just, it would never work as well. It's gotta be a destination in itself. And whenever you add on a beach, you're having conflicting destinations right there. Mm -hmm. And that just, to me, you can do both, but in my in my very short attention span it's one or the other and i hate the beach and that's what has always driven me <laughs> to love something like disney more so that it is the opposite of the beach
0: yeah yes yeah, so um but well, you'll have to go to alani see what you think oh i i've been there
1: i i oh, enjoy that's it right um <laughs> but it's still it's a beach it's got that disney yeah. theming that i love but you know I, I, I oh my gosh, it's a Lonnie though. It, it's a tough one. <laughs> that is very tough. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Florida was still being considered by Walt as the location for his project. So shortly after the failure of the Palm Beach project negotiations, Walt once again engaged Buzz Price and ERA to conduct preliminary research into the Tampa St. Petersburg area. But the Tampa area never evolved past the discussion phase. So in 1961, the Disney Company again retained ERA to explore the rural and vacation markets in Florida and to evaluate specific locations for future recreation facilities. Now, for this study, Buzz Price hired freelance researcher Robert Lorimer to gather tourist data from throughout the state. So Lorimer traveled to Florida and for two weeks researched nearly every region of Florida to determine the key factors such as weather, infrastructure, and vacation trends. And he also visited several Florida attractions, including Marineland and Seaquarium. I assume that's SeaWorld's predecessor? Oh, I don't know about
1: Sequarium, but I know Marineland still exists to this day. So, oh, okay. Yeah, that is still ours, around.
0: Closed, ours closed decades ago. Out here. Yeah,
1: I have so. to look more up on Sequarium. I've never even heard of that one. Yeah, I never heard of it
0: either. So um in his report, Lorimer recommended Ocala um uh, however you pronounce it, A-cala, Ocala. Ocala. <laughs> as the Ocala, okay. As the prime site for a Florida project. So I'm sure all the Ocala people listening right now are getting all excited. Or Ocala, it it all depends on how you say it. We're we're all just so different. I know. I I always that's one of the things I do is my A's are always soft. They they didn't break me of that habit there at Disney. Unfortunately, Lorimer missed the key fact that highway plans called for both the Florida Turnpike and Interstate Four to intersect near Orlando. So Lorimer's recommendation was based on bad information. Now, during this time, rumors of a potential Disneyland park in Florida began to spread throughout the Florida business community. And many of the rumors stem from the efforts of Florida Governor Cecil Ferris Bryant to recruit Disney. And the plans for Palm Beach had motivated state officials in attracting some version of an Eastern Disneyland to Florida. So Walt continued um, his plans for a Florida project in earnest. The ERA studies produced by Buzz Price showed that 40% of Florida tourists went to southern Florida, 40% to central Florida, and 20% to northern Florida. Buzz determined that those who drove to the south had to pass through central Florida, so that location was the best for Walt's city. Buzz Price recalled in 1961, after rejecting some other alternatives, Walt asked us to look at the rest of Florida and figured out where the park should be. Late in 1963, we studied in depth a location in Central Florida. Not Miami, as most people expected it would be, was the main point of maximum interception of Florida tourism, and that Orlando, centrally located, was the point of maximum access to the southerly flow of Florida tourism from both the east and west shores of the state. It was clear that we needed to be in the center of the state. Then we used the logic that we developed on Disneyland that we didn't want to be on the ocean and compete with the beach. We figured that the freeways that were coming from east and west were crisscrossing in Orlando. So Walt now was beginning to narrow down his choices for his Florida project, and Walt was ready to make some decisions. On Sunday, November 17, 1963, Buzz Price joined Walt and other company executives, including the Disney vice presidents, Joe Fowler, Don Tatum, Jack Sayers, and Esmond Carden, or Card, as he's better known, Walker. Um, This delegation would be the key figures involved in making the Florida project a reality. Now, the group was originally scheduled to leave on a Grumman turboprop Walt had ordered for company use. But the plane was not ready in time for this trip. So Grumman f- um, furnished a loaner plane, and the same model, but without any exterior markings to indicate this was a Disney aircraft. Although it was unintentional, this anonymity served Walt's purpose of keeping a low profile. Now, as we discussed in episode two, at this time of this trip... Walt was considering several proposals across the country for developing entertainment and amusement attractions, plus Disneyland was continuing to grow, and the attractions for the New York World's Fair were being developed. So a consensus was growing within the company that too much time was being spent on proposals. Walt needed to make a decision if a project would be developed on the East Coast, and if so, where? The November 1963 plane tour was designed to move this process along. The trip began with stops in the locations we've talked about, St. Louis, Niagara Falls, and Washington, D.C. area, where the group toured potential sites for a Disney project. And on Thursday of that week, the group landed at Herndon Airport, now known as Orlando Executive Airport. And upon landing, the Disney team climbed in the two rental cars and headed towards Acala and checked into a local hotel. Walt had reserved his room under the fictitious name William Brown. Even so, several people, including the waitress at dinner, recognized him and asked for his autograph. Walt graciously signed his name, William Brown. <laughs> 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 oh. The next morning, Friday, November 22nd, the group returned to Orlando for the flight back to California. Walt instructed the pilot to fly over Orlando. They followed the Sunshine State Parkway toward the intersection of Interstate 4, then under construction. When Walt saw the construction site, he said, that's it, the freeway bisects here. Yeah, no,
1: it's... I mean, even going back to the whenever they were in the plane and they got to orlando executive airport uh as it's known now i mean uh, for people who aren't really familiar with that that's just right above right above colonial avenue and over by the 408 like basically downtown so obviously whenever orlando was so small and not thriving as it is today someone like walt disney coming in uh, that that would have been so hard to get past him. Not like today, going into uh, going into MCO, which of course was still an Air Force base back then. I believe Air Force base, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, it
1: was the yeah. So I, I mean, back then, you know, if it was in today's time, that would be a lot different. You have a celebrity come in here, you might not never know. But at the same time, back then, coming into that one small airport right there, right on the outskirts of town, it would have just been impossible to hide him.
0: Yeah. And the interesting thing, too, is they traveled under fictitious names. There, There's no way they could have pulled this yeah. off today because we, you know, we're so concerned yeah. about security. Which is part of the magic of all of it, that yeah. <laughs> they
1: could do this, <clears throat> that it will never be done again. And if it is yeah. done again, then...
0: You know, we're, we're living history right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, flying at a low altitude, Walt, Walt always liked to fly as low as possible to study the landscape. So the plane circled over the limitless swamps and forests near Orlando, and Walt peered down with his calculating eyes examining the land below. Now, this was the first time Walt saw the entire Florida property in person. Not everyone on Walt's team, though, was enthusiastic about the site. Marvin Davis tried to describe what he saw. Actually, on a scale of 10, that property was a 1+, plus. maybe. It was awful. It was a swamp. There was only one high spot on the whole thing. However, there was a lot of land, and the problems of adjacent development Walt experienced in Anaheim would not happen to him in Florida. So they flew south to the Florida Keys, northwest to Fort Myers and north up the west coast to St Petersburg and Tampa. And this provided the delegation with a low altitude tour of the east, south, and west coasts of Florida. And finally they flew over the Gulf of Mexico towards New Orleans. The team was not aware of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas earlier that day until they landed in New Orleans at 6:30 p.m. for the night. And the group was stunned. On the flight home the next day, no one spoke. It wasn't until the plane approached Burbank that Walt announced, "Well, that's the place, Central Florida."
1: And that is such a good little piece of uh, trivia history for any Dan- Disney fan out there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: on what now? Which piece? Oh, with the I never put it together. Even whenever you started with the uh, with the JFK assassination, right mm-hmm. on there. I just I didn't even think about it. It's not something you think yeah. about whenever you. Uh, Whenever you compare the two, something that was such a sad day in American history with something as a Disney fan that is so historic.
0: I know that Walt made his decision on the day President Kennedy was killed. And for people of my generation, we know exactly where we were when we first heard about it sort of like for for the younger people the younger generation they remember um where they were at 9-11 exactly when they heard about 9-11 my
1: generation
0: yeah (laughs) so um so soon after landing in california walt asked buzz price to begin researching prospective properties in central florida so Buzz assigned responsibility for this project to William Lund, who was somewhat familiar with Central Florida after traveling with Disney Imagineer um, Bob Gurr to a conference in Tampa on the use of automated people movers in United States airports. So on November twenty seventh, 1963, five days after Walt's flight over Orlando, London Price joined Walt and Roy Disney and Disney executives card walker Don Tatum, company treasurers Larry Ty- Tyron and Mel Melton and Joe Fowler, and company attorney Robert Foster and general counsel Dick Morrow for a follow-up meeting about the recent plane trip. Here at this meeting now was the hierarchy of Disney leadership, which is what... The topic of the day clearly required this meeting was in conference room 2e a mahogany lined room often used for important meetings at walt disney headquarters so if you ever go on that backstage magic tour you know look for 2e oh if you get in there Um, buzz price distributed copies of the proposal to develop a resort in florida this meeting topic centered on identifying the potential properties large enough for the project and at the end of the meeting, Walt stated that since the next day was Thanksgiving, he wanted to use the time to think about the proposal. So as Buzz Price gathered up copies of the proposal, he was instructed to closely guard the copies. No information from this meeting was to go beyond this group. Hmm. So the day after, yeah, and it's, there, there'd be no chance of that today, it would already be on <laughs> exactly. Twitter or the internet or something. Instagram that. yeah. <laughs> The day after Thanksgiving, Buzz Price and William Lund met with Cardwalker Walker and Don Tatum. The Disney executives gave Price approval to evaluate the Orlando and Ocala areas for what was now being called Project Winter. Using the same formula, he used to select the Disneyland site. So Price would evaluate highway and climate data, regional economic forecasts, and topographical conditions. He was also charged with researching potential properties for purchase, and Price had to do all of this in 60 days. So secrecy was of the utmost importance for Project Winter. So Price and Lund were instructed not to identify themselves as being associated with Disney or ERA at any time during their research. So Lund was told if anyone asked him, he was simply advising a client on investment opportunities in Florida real estate, which was true. Yeah. So after completing his research in Florida, Lund returned to California and briefed Price on his findings, and Lund then prepared his report. During the second week of January, the same small group of Disney executives met with Price and Lund in Conference Room 2E to discuss the report titled Preliminary Investigation of Available Acreage for Project Winter. The report focused on the Orlando area and concluded, Orlando offers greater potential for the development of Project Winter than does the Acala area, since Orlando has a large, growing, and healthy economic base to help sustain a project of this magnitude. However, operating the year-round theme park resort in central Florida still had its concerns, such as the area's insect problems, hurricane threats, regular thunderstorms and climate, periodic cold winter days, and, like we were talking about earlier, a consistently hot, humid summer season. So all this compared less favorably to the more temperate conditions at Disneyland in Southern California. But Walt still remained convinced that Central Florida was the best option for his plan, Which is just... It kind of raises
1: so many thoughts in my mind. I mean, obviously it's here, so that's all I've ever had to dealt with. But uh, even up towards Gainesville area, I mean, we watch it on the news. Sometimes their weather can be so much more uh, just pleasing than what it is in Orlando. Going up even further, I mean, you start to get into real just blank territory if you start going up closer to Jacksonville. but. Maybe the weather would have even been better up there. I mean, obviously, then they would have ran into the problem of how do you get tourists up into that area? It would have been a blind spot. But yeah, just weather-based alone, there, there were so many more opportunities in Florida that weren't ever pursued.
0: Yeah. Well, I know one of the things that convinced Walt of that land is when he saw Bay Lake from the air, yeah. uh, He he fell in love with that. And and Bay Lake had a lot to do with convincing him that was where he wanted to build his project. And it's
1: perfect till this day. I mean, mm-hmm. Bay Lake is, it is it is Disney
0: World. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I remember the days when you could only get to the Magic Kingdom by monorail or going across on ferry boats. Oh,
1: before the Bay days Lake. where you could just lie about having a reservation at the Contemporary and park there. Yeah, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Never would have occurred to me. <laughs> no one does
0: that. I don't do that. So anyway, okay. <laughs> so so now that Orlando, the Orlando area, had been selected for Project Winter, the ERA team investigated fifty properties and researched twenty-five of them in detail. There were a few requirements. The primary one being that the parcels be between 3,000 and 12,000 acres. The study showed that large single owner land holdings and the planned construction of new highways made Southern Orlando the best location for the project. Now the story of how Disney secretly acquired the property without inflating land prices could be a lengthy episode unto itself. But basically, Disney set up five dummy corporations to secretly purchase the land. The names of those companies were Tomahawk Properties, Reedy Creek Ranch, Latin American Development and Management Corporation, Bay Lake Properties, and I-4 Corporation, spelled A-Y-E, then capital F-O-U-R, a punny tribute to Interstate 4. It's awful. <laughs> now, for for our history buffs, the names of those Companies can be found on a window honoring Don Tatum above the Crystal Art Shop on the Magic Kingdom's Main Street, USA. It reads M T Lott Company Real Estate Investments. A friend in deeds is a friend indeed. Don Tatum, President, subsidiaries: Tomahawk Properties, Latin American Development, I Four Corporation, Bay Lake Properties, Reedy Creek Ranchlands, and Compass East Corporation. So, definitely want to check that out the next time you're on Main Street. Yeah, I
1: always look at the windows, and I always find stuff like that. I don't think I've ever taken the time to read that much on one window, though.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a big window, yeah. too. I looked at it, actually, the last time when I was there, just two weeks
1: ago. I'll have to go this week. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, Disney representatives traveled under fictitious names. And the travel patterns of Disney staff were disguised. For example, no one flew directly from California to Orlando. Instead, they would travel through other cities under multiple names to prevent themselves from being traced back to Burbank. So these deceptive travel patterns led to all kinds of rumors and speculations about who was buying large parcels of land in central Florida. Once Disney's attorney, Bob Foster, who went by the name Bob Price for the land acquisitions, flew from Orlando to St. Louis to visit his mother in Kansas. So this led to speculation that McDonnell Aircraft was behind the land purchases because they were headquartered in St. Louis. Uh. So so even phone calls between California and Florida were routed through legal offices Disney had retained for the land purchases to prevent an employee from connecting Disney with the land purchases. So according to Marvin Davis, it was really classified stuff. It was CIA, his meaning Walt's, luggage was all monogrammed WED, so he called himself Walter E. Davis, That was so Cloak and Dagger. (laughs) Um, Now, (laughs) isn't it great? So secretive. (laughs) Now, Card Walker recalled one time on a trip to Florida where the project was almost exposed. Um, One night we were having dinner in a small restaurant, and his waitress spotted Walt and came over to the table saying, I think I know who you are. You're Walt Disney. At first he denied it. Oh, no, I'm not Walt Disney. But finally, Walt said, promise me you won't tell anybody who I am. I think she wanted an autograph. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Now, in May 1964, Bob Foster and a Florida real estate dealer with statewide experience, Roy Hawkins, narrowed their choices to three areas, one between DeLand and Daytona Beach, another near Osceola City, a third in Orange County near Orlando. And Foster made a presentation to Disney executives in Burbank, and he argued that the DeLand-Daytona Beach property was the best. So, Walt, so where is that in relation to Orlando, before I go on? In DeLand-Daytona? Uh-huh. That would
1: be in the Northeast. So, Daytona is about... Uh, by I-4, Daytona is about an hour drive if you have no traffic going up that way. So you just take four, and then after you're on 95, going north, it's another five or ten miles up in there. Okay. Yeah, so not very far, but still, okay. in terms of
0: Florida, that's far. Oh. <laughs> So, in California, that's just an afternoon yeah. drive. <laughs> now, Walt ended the proposal by interrupting, Bob, what in the hell are you doing way up there? Walt went on to remind Foster of the survey, showing the northern location would be too cold for year-round operation and for the park's vegetation. The Elceola City property was owned by a state senator, Erlo Bronson, who had a commitment to sell 2,500 of his 10,000 acres. So Disney's efforts centered on three major areas in Orange County, 12,000 acres owned by two cousins, Bay Lake property owned by 12 Orlando couples, and another lake area of 1,200 acres belonging to a pair of brothers. Now, 48 small parcels called outages had separate owners. So by August, the three major holdings were tied down with options. And Senator Bronson had agreed to sell his entire 10,000 acres at Osceola City. And the property was acquired by Disney as an alternative if the Orange County operation didn't work out. But the major problem was the outages. The lake property had been subdivided in 1913 and plots had been sold through mail order catalogs. So Disney organized a 50-person task force to trace the descendants of the original buyers with an offer to purchase the property. So a conference room in Burbank contained a huge map of Orange County, and each day the status of the acquisitions was plotted and updated, just as military leaders tracked territory won by troops in a war. And Walt visited that room every day. Walt placed his palm over the intersection of two highways saying, Now, this is very important to our future development. If we can get all the property here, we can do something imaginative with it. If we can't get it all, then we'll be stuck with something conventional. Now, during one of the meetings, Bob Foster mentioned a large parcel of acreage was available. Buy it, Walt said. However, Roy protested. They had already committed themselves to a huge amount of acreage. Yes, Roy, Walt replied. But wouldn't you love to own 7,000 acres around Disneyland now? And anyway, we can always sell this parcel later if we have to. Buy it, said Roy. <laughs> On one parcel, the guy jacked the price out of sight, Bob Gurr recalled. We simply designed the park around his property and he lost his ax- access. He f- he's finally sold decades later. Okay. <laughs> In his enthusiasm for the project... Walt couldn't resist seeing the property himself, even though he realized the danger if he were recognized. Because of course, then prices of the land would go sky exactly. high. Exactly. But he flew off to Florida in the company plane with a few of his executives. When the plane landed to refuel at a Florida airport, they all disembarked from the plane and they headed for the terminal. But one of them said to Walt, you can't go, you'll be spotted. So Walt grudgingly agreed to remain on the field. But a young mechanic was staring at him and asked, "'Are you Walt Disney?' "'Hell no,' Walt replied. "'I get mistaken for him all the time, "'and if I ever run into that SOB, "'I'm going to tell him what I think of him.'" (laughs) (laughs) So so back on the plane, Walt viewed the proposed site from the air. The land was nothing but cypress groves and black-watered swamps as far as one could see, To the average person, it would seem impossible to build a theme park and a city of the future from this wilderness, but Walt was immensely pleased. Yeah, it's going to be fine, he said. In the end, the team completed 47 transactions to acquire enough property. The largest parcel was the Dimitri Tract at 12,400 acres and would someday hold the Magic Kingdom, Epcot Center, and the Disney MGM Studio, which But this land came with legal complications due to the underground mineral rights being owned by Tufts University and the Wilson Cypress Company. Other large parcels included the Bronson Tract, which was 8,380 acres, the Hamrick Tract, which was 2,700 acres, the Hall Brother property of 1,800 acres, and the Bay Lake Tract of 1,300 acres. Other properties included the Munger Subdivision and the Goldstein property of 37 acres. So all in all, Disney purchased 27,443 acres twice the total acreage of Manhattan Island, approximately the size of Boston or one square mile larger than San Francisco for about $5 million at a cost of $150 per acre. Walt finally had all the property he needed. So that's quite a deal. It it
1: just seems like chump change at this point in time that he got all of it for so much money and just knowing what it's worth nowadays, the fact that, you know, we do have all this land that is being currently sold off, that's on Walt Disney property, that's being sold to develop. And it, it almost makes you wonder if Walt was still around, which obviously, if he was still around at this point, the first thing would be, well, dude, you, you probably should be dead. And then the second point would be, <laughs> yeah. what you know are you okay with them starting to sell off all this land or would what would your idea be
0: to develop it oh yeah well i don't think and we'll probably get into this more in our next episode but i i don't think disney world would look what it looks like today if Walt had lived 10 to 15 years (laughs) Oh,
1: i agree completely agree yeah
0: Um, Now, throughout the summer and into the fall of 1965, the Florida news media was obsessed with discovering the identity of the mystery corporation buying the large parcels of land in central Florida. However, Walt was not ready to reveal himself. But during the summer, Walt toured the NASA facilities at Cape Canaveral, and during a press conference afterwards, Walt was asked if his company was coming to Florida, and Walt vaguely denied any involvement. And, but this denial only briefly delayed the inevitable, because reporters and business leaders in Florida were narrowing the most likely companies down to Disney as the mystery company. On October 1, 1965, attorney Paul Heliwell, who was involved in the purchase of the land for Disney, announced his client would reveal itself and its plans at a November fifteenth press conference in Orlando. However, the media had its own timeline. On October 13th and 19th, gossip columnist columnist Wadsworth claimed anecdotal evidence indicated Disney was a mystery company. In a recent business meeting in Anaheim, a participant claimed Disney had recently purchased large amounts of land in Florida. Wadsworth also noted larger than normal amounts of Disney stock were being traded, something that could occur in advance of a major company announcement. Okay, that's
1: kind of cool to think I mean, for everyone out there who doesn't know, we are actually recording this on the night of the 13th, so that, right. we're, we're at the 50th anniversary
0: of that right now. You, yeah, isn't that amazing? It is. It's cool. See how we, we time that so I like well. like that. Yeah. <laughs> so the mystery finally ended on Sunday, October 17th. Orlando Sentinel reporter Emily Bavar, who was the editor of the paper's Sunday publication, Florida Magazine had been assigned to cover Disneyland's 10th anniversary. During her assignment, Bavar interviewed Walt Disney in his Burbank office. She asked Walt if his company was behind the land acquisitions in Florida, and she later reported he adroitly hedged direct questions concerning it. However, Walt went on to comment in detail about Central Florida's weather, traffic, and tourism. Since Walt seemed to have a great deal more knowledge about Central Florida than someone having no interest in the area, she became convinced that Disney was indeed the mystery company. Hmm. So while Bavar was putting her article together, the editor of the Sentinel already had been secretly briefed on the matter and had been asked to stall the revelation in the paper until Disney had purchased all the land. However, even the editor could not delay Bavar's well-thought-out story. When Bavar's article was published on October 17th with the headline, We Say Mystery Industry Is Disney... General Potter and Bob Foster were in Orlando under assumed names on business that included a helicopter tour of the property, after which they hiked around on the property. When Potter awoke Sunday morning and went down to the lobby of the Robert Meyer Hotel where he was staying and saw the Orlando Sentinel identifying Disney as the secret company, finding a pay phone he rung up Cardwalker in orlando to tell him the secret was out. okay
1: i not to bring it up again with the 50th but i would be absolutely giddy if i woke up on october 17th which is coming this saturday and saw that they actually had a newspaper with the headline again doing a throwback to say we say mystery industry is disney that would be you know, so that- fun
0: That would be cool if they reprinted it. I would
1: love that. I would probably buy like six copies, and I would send one to you immediately. Thank you. Thank you. You, Maybe you need to call up the Orlando Sentinel and remind them. I mean, what else are (laughs) they going to post? Man gets eaten by an alligator, and we have another king cobra on the loose. That's about it. That's everything that's going on
0: here. (laughs) Well, don't be some wacky Floridian who does something crazy. We hear about that all the time We are the joke of (laughs) the United States. (laughs) (laughs) But um, they really should. Like what was neat for Disneyland 60th, well, you were there too, but for our listeners who weren't there, they reprinted the newspapers from opening day and gave them out to the guests. And that that was very cool. So see all the old ads and and all (laughs) that.
1: Just need to do it from here.
0: Yeah, yeah, they do. They should. I hope they do. So anyway, um, Well, Governor's Burns office soon called Disney and demanded that if the company was indeed coming to Florida, the governor and his administration needed to know. So rather than wait until the November 13th press conference, Walt decided to go public. The company quickly arranged to officially announce their involvement later that week in Miami. Governor Burns was scheduled to address the Florida League of Municipalities convention on Monday, October 25th, and the Disney executives decided that would be a good time to reveal the Florida project. So Foster and Potter immediately flew to Miami to brief the governor and his advisors. Walt very cleverly allowed Governor Burns the honor of revealing the plans. So, on October 25th, the governor announced to a roar of applause that Walt Disney Productions was coming to Florida and bringing with it a massive new development for the Sunshine State. When Walt was questioned about the company's plans for Florida, Walt was vague and provided no specifics. However, in episode four of Connecting with Walt, titled The Master Plan, Craig and I will take a look at Walt Disney's vision for his Florida project, which included many of the resort amenities we're familiar with today. We'll also examine in great detail Walt's concept for a city of the future. And
1: it's going to get even more exciting than it already has today.
0: Yeah, what Walt had planned is is quite impressive.
1: Oh yeah. No, I there there's so much that I still think from those original plans that need to be developed today, but that's a that's another conversation for another day.
0: I think I think we'll have a really good conversation next I week. I agree. So, many books, films, and articles and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Disney World by Chad Denver Emerson, Walt and the Promise of Progress City by Sam Genoa, Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, Walt Disney and Technology by Christian Moran, and Walt Disney, an American original by Bob Thomas. And just so everyone
1: knows, uh, we will have direct links to all of these books and any other that are ever discussed on any episode in our show notes page at disunplug.com during in the uh, actual show notes page for each episode in the connecting with Walt one you can't miss it the beautiful logo that everyone wants in a t-shirt so if you go there you'll be able to get direct links to each of these books on Amazon if they're brand new and still available you'll be able to purchase them there and if not there is always opportunities to buy from the third party market out there for some really good prices for the harder to find books so if Mm -hmm. you want if you want to find them uh, don't don't bother Googling it. Just go to our show notes page, com.
0: Great. Excellent. Thank you. So, and Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners find you? Uh,
1: again, I, well, it's been a while <laughs> since we've recorded the second episode, but I believe my joke is I'm still at home and I still will not reveal the exact <laughs> location of it, but uh, everyone can find me on Facebook under Craig Williams. I'm friends with everyone else in the Diz unplugged network and the Diz. So, You can find me there as well as on Twitter. I am at teleclaster. If I have to explain what it means, then, uh, well, that's just a waste of my time. So just search for me on that way. And then uh, also, instead of following me on Instagram personally, I would much rather prefer you follow The Diz on Instagram, which is at the period diz, and that is where i spend most of my time doing that form of social media as well as responding to everyone and uh of course if you ever have any questions um and any responses you want to post on our show notes page or on youtube uh i am most likely the person who will respond the quickest to all those so uh you can contact me through all those too excellent
0: and you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast Disneyland show with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Joe Malato willie and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all. So listen to us live on Mixler's Sundays at 8 p.m. Pacific time, Disneyland time, and you can download our three weekly shows each Monday and Tuesday. And soon
1: you can also listen to them on YouTube.
0: And someday we have to have the technology where we're all on camera. That would be wonderful. (laughs) That would be. I don't know how much the team would like that. And Tom would hate it more than anyone else.
1: (laughs) Throwing him under the bus.
0: Uh, anyway, if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his Imagineers and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney History episodes. And Craig, where can our listeners find these shows? disunplug.com of course, under our show
1: notes and uh as Michael informs me of any relevant episodes of the Disneyland edition. Uh, that would pertain to Connecting with Walt. I will be adding links to those in the Connecting with Walt show notes. But uh, if you haven't gone through the archives of the Disneyland edition, do yourself a favor and start going through them now. Uh, It's packed with good information. And at the same time, it's always fun uh, that part of our jobs is that we just capture a glimpse in the moment of time in Disney parks history. So uh, if if you weren't really catching up on Disney... Disneyland, especially, you know, four years ago, and you really want to see what was happening right then. And no better way to do it than go back and listening to the Disneyland edition and seeing where Disneyland was at that current point in time.
0: Definitely. Yeah, and we have a lot of yeah, fun you do on that show. And I think Tom and my wife Carol, on one of the shows, one of the threads on the boards, they've put a whole list of all of the um, history episodes. Even better. I need to find yeah, that. Yeah, so that makes it really easy. So, And you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at mbowling121. And I'm on Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So I would love to hear from yep. you. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. Thank you.